This is the Education Gadfly Show. Right. Yeah, I think Mike's right. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 let's it just end it right there. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for the week, Adam Tyner. Adam, welcome back to the show. Terrific to be back with you, Mike. Yeah, <laughs> the suspense was killing us. Yeah, Adam. Uh, Adam is Fordham's own associate director of research and co-author of our newest study, uh, social studies and reading comprehension. Also joining us, as always, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Good to be here. Great to have you with us. So, yes, this is one of these ever so frequent shameless self-promotion podcasts that we do because we have been pumping out great studies and reports left and right. Uh, you know, we're not going to let some little pandemic, you know, stop us. No, no, no. We're not going to be intimidated by it. Oh, David's cringing. So is Adam. <laughs> I, I shouldn't have gone there. I shouldn't have gone there. All right. Well, hey, I am intimidated by the coronavirus, but uh, we also, as a think tank, have to keep coming out with studies. And we have a whole bunch lined up. Can only wait so long. This pandemic, man, it just keeps going and going and going. And so we finally decided to release this study that looks at a very important topic, which is how we can teach kids uh, to read more effectively. So let's get into it in Ed Reform Update. All right, Adam. So here's the deal. We were curious about whether Edie Hirsch has been right all these years. And Edie Hirsch, 30 years ago, uh, started writing and talking about this idea that perhaps the reason that so many American students were not learning to read very well was because we were not doing a good enough job teaching them about the world, teaching them history and science and geography and the arts and literature. And as a result, uh, many young people didn't have the vocabulary that they needed to make sense of what they were reading. So this is a separate discussion about, you know, from decoding, where I think everybody agrees that little kids need to be taught how to decode. Uh, the I wish everyone agreed that. I'm not well, sure that everyone true. does, but all, right. all of yeah. us do anyway. Anybody who's a serious scholar agrees with that. Yes, well said. And everybody agrees that that's not enough, of course, because you, you might be able to sound out a word, say even a tough one, Tyrannosaurus rex. But if you haven't studied dinosaurs, you don't know what that is, right? So Don Hirsch has been arguing that content knowledge is key. And yet, when you go into most elementary school classrooms, it sure seems like uh, teaching things like social studies and science has not been a big focus, especially in the early grades. Instead, we do a lot of the decoding stuff, and then we do all these endless, endless exercises. I've seen it with my kids, asking them to find the main idea and to you know tell us about the different elements of the story and, and all these kinds of, quote, skills. We were curious to Fordham if there was any way to try to dig into this and say, well, if you got more of this content, did that actually help you become a better reader? And lo and behold, we uh, looked at the early childhood longitudinal study, a federal study, and noticed that they had some amazing data, including assessments of kids and surveys of teachers asking them about how much time they spend on different subjects. And they follow kids over the course of of the entire elementary school, and they survey parents and administrators. It's a data palooza, Adam. Really is. And you and your uh, colleague uh, were able to dig in. Tell us what you did with all those data. Well, the ECLSK data is really rich. Like you said, it covers six years from kindergarten to fifth grade. There are teacher surveys, administrator surveys, parent surveys, and then there's all these assessments of the students as well. So um, we were able to look 
and try to isolate different uses of instructional times, specifically what subjects the classrooms were focused on for their instructional time. How did that relate to students' progress in reading during that period? So we have six years And there's a fair amount of variation. Some students are in classes where they're spending a lot of time on social studies and science. Others are in classrooms where the average amount of time being spent on English language arts is two hours per day. And there's over an hour of math time too. So students are not getting, on average, a ton of of science and social studies, less than half an hour a day for those two things. But there's variation in that. So we wanted to explore that variation and see if it related to the amount of progress that students made over that period. And we found that students who were exposed to more social studies time made discernibly more progress in reading from kindergarten to fifth grade. And this was a very exciting finding. Now, uh, we are very clear that the, that the results are statistically significant, but they are small, right? This isn't, uh, for the most part, a huge impact. 15% of a standard deviation over a five-year period. So, I mean, you think that's like 3% of a standard deviation per year, but if you just heard 3% of a standard deviation per year, you'd think, well, next year it'll be negative one or something. This is 3% consistently yeah. building each yeah. year to add up to uh, a modest, but yeah, can kind of continuing and accumulating effect. Particularly for uh, lower income students, right? English language learners and girls, for some reason. We haven't really talked about a lot about why girls over boys. And it was social studies, right? It was not science. More time in science did not show that same impact. And in more time in English language arts did not show that impact, even though we're looking at reading. Right now, uh, right. you've been very careful to say this. This is uh, this is not a randomized experiment, uh, so we have to be careful about claims of causality. Though the data does allow you to do a ton of controls. That's right. right. And there's certainly, uh, you know, you, you walk through and say, well, you know, there's certainly reasons to believe that this, you know, that this could be a causal relationship. Totally. You know, but maybe there's other things, right? Like maybe it could be that we're really looking at teacher effectiveness, and it so happens that teachers who are effective are also the teachers that teach more social studies and science. Yeah, that's possible. Social studies, right? But uh, teach more social studies. But again, it's kind of circular, right? <laughs> Whatever yeah. it is, it certainly seems like. It, that tells us something about effectiveness. Yeah, I mean, that, and so at the end of the day, it's, it does seem like you're better off teaching more social studies than less social studies, right? How do you think about this, Adam, in terms of what, what we might be seeing here, why we might be seeing these improvements? Is it basically, yeah, Don Hirsch was right. You, you got to build the content knowledge and then kids can become better readers. It's simple as that. I think we don't really know what's in the black box. It'd be great if we had a lot more information about what they're teaching in social studies, what they're teaching in ELA. But um, I think there's a strong intuition among a lot of us that in social studies, you're systematically dealing with different topics and that that is going to help build vocabulary that's going to be applicable to the kinds of things that you're going to assess when you're trying to find out if someone's literate. Do they understand different kinds of social relationships or social problems? Those aren't just social studies questions. This is a thing people get into this domain specificity thing a lot. And they're like, well, Mm -hmm. that just means you learned a lot about social studies, but you don't know anything about anything else. I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm biased because I have a PhD in political science, which is kind of a social studies topic. But Mm -hmm. I really believe that if you know more about how society works, you're going to understand literature better. You're going to understand, you know, Invisible Man and King Lear. And I mean, maybe that's a little too close to home for where we are in in 2020 <laughs> USA. But anyway, um, well, it, it really, those, are, those aren't right. just 
that domain specific where it's not going to be applicable to anything else. I think social studies probably carries a lot of information that is useful in those other domains. Right. And yet science, it did not show up. And you know, look, it may be that in the case of science, the vocabulary that you're learning is more specific, domain specific, right? Uh, a little so. more specialized versus, you know, the kind of stuff, again, you know, the stuff you learn in social studies, which we don't really know. And we, you know, all we know is about the amount of time. We don't know what the curriculum That's looks right. like. A lot of us at Fordham suspect probably in many places, social studies curriculum is not great. It's probably not a lot of actual what we, you know, history, geography, civics. It might be softer stuff, but it's, it's, it's something, it's the kind of thing that maybe you would, you know, be useful if you're reading the newspaper. David, you taught at the other end of the spectrum with high school kids, but you care a lot about history and civics. I mean, what, what's your take on this? First of all, great news for the social studies world, right? I mean, it's good news for the social studies world, I suppose. Although it's also, I guess in some level, level I feel like it's, it's reinforcing some of our concerns. And I think we should all at some level acknowledge our responsibility or, or culpability for this, uh, that social studies is being underemphasized right, in a world of testing. And so I agree. I, I think the results are intuitive. I buy it. It's important, right? If kids get to eighth and ninth grade and they don't know what Rome is or why it was not built in a day, uh, then they're going to have a hard time making sense of what they're reading. And there are people who also argue that it goes the other direction too, right? That you work out vocabulary when you understand sort of the context in which words appear. So, you know, it may sim not simply be that you are better at understanding a passage about Rome. It may also be that when you read passages about Rome, you then learn sort of general vocabulary. What's challenging, right, is sort of like, what do we do with this information? I know what I want teachers to do, <laughs> and I know what I want principals to do, right? And the question is, so sort of, why aren't we already doing it? Mm -hmm. And what can we do to sort of get people to buy into this vision of content-rich mm -hmm. curricula? I have some thoughts on that. They sort of start with locating accountability at the school level and ex sort of extending the timeline over which people are held responsible for sort of reading comprehension. Um, but I think we have to admit that it's sort of complicated conversation. And it's, it's not like you can just snap your fingers and make social study instru instruction better across the country. I think that timeline thing is important because if you're in a, if you're teaching ELA and you want your kids to do well on the end of year test, the idea that you're going to really focus on content knowledge is not mm -hmm. probably a good strategy because you don't have that much time to build that much content knowledge in a few months. And you don't know what content's going to be on the exam. So the kind of rational thing to do is just to do test prep. And that really resembles a lot of what we see in the yeah. so what yeah. they call evidence-based practices of how you get students to be better readers is doing a bunch of reading test prep. Find the main idea. Tell us the perspective of the author. Do this kind of stuff that's content-free, but really mm -hmm. is a lot like you're just getting them ready for the test. But if you have a longer time horizon, and that's one of the advantages of the study is we look over six years. I think there's probably, if you have a longer time horizon, you really would want to be building that knowledge. And then of course the students are going to be way better off in the long run if you did that. I like that a lot. You know, and I have to wonder, I it makes me want to look at this kindergarten assessment, for example, that Eccles uses. Like we just have assumed since the No Child Left Behind days that well, you can't really start testing till third grade, but then you're missing half the elementary school in terms of potential progress kids are making or not making. So 
could you test kids reliably in kindergarten or maybe first or maybe second and then not do it again until the end of fifth grade? You know, or also look at how kids are doing once they're in the middle school. But I will say this, David, you know, to your skepticism, we have not been able to tell principals with a straight face that, hey, you know, if if you have your teachers teach more content, more social studies or science, uh, your kids will become better readers even years from now. There just hasn't been the evidence to that. There, there's been this theory that content yeah. knowledge matters. Right. Cognitive scientists have known forever that it matters. But in terms of an intervention, you know, do X and you'll get Y. We just haven't had, I mean, you can't claim that more social studies in K one two three is an evidence based strategy. This study, I think, starts to move us in that direction. It's one important piece. We'd love to have a lot more to be able to make that case persuasively. Yeah, I think. I mean, that's a fair point, Mike. And I guess my other next question is, you know, when it comes to the incentives, right? Does this mean we need to be testing kids in social studies? Right? Is that is that the next? Yeah. Is that the logical implication here? I mean. It seems like, I agree, this is a really important step forward. But sort of the next question is, the next logical question is, which social studies, right? Or, or there's many next questions. Adam, do you have a sense of that? I guess I'm just curious, right? Do you have any sense of whether they were getting world history, U.S. history, some other form of social studies, or is it know, kind of all? No, we don't know uh, about the social studies instruction. But what, what we do suggest in the report to... As a as a potential solution for this, and this is a this is not an evidence based suggestion. It's something that is based on kind of the way people have been looking at this problem. You just said, should we be testing social studies and trying to figure out how we can fix that? And my understanding is Louisiana right now is piloting a program where they actually align the ELA assessments with specific content so that you know that in first grade it's about the human body and about you know ancient civilizations or something and then in the second grade it's about some other topics and so you have to be reading about something in the reading tests so they align it to the content so then the teachers know that there's some um, specific content that's going to be covered and they have a reason to teach that content. And it actually solves that problem that we were talking about a second ago about this long-term thing. Well, it might be good to teach content in the long-term, but in the, in the short term, it doesn't make a lot of sense. We should just do reading test prep, but that kind of could solve that problem. So I'm interested to see how that pans out. And I think it's a potential solution to that problem. I like that. Look, I, I think there we should be talking about all of these things, right? It's hard to say we're going to add a test. I mean, that that's just not, doesn't feel politically feasible. But if we turn the reading test or the reading and writing test into something that actually assesses uh, a body of science and social studies content, and maybe, again, I, I think we can make the case at some point that we should start testing earlier, you know, first or second grade, but then skip a grade or two in, in the sequence, you know, that maybe we don't need the annual testing anymore and, and give the, give kids more time to make the progress that we're, that we're looking for. Look, we could go on and on about this. Uh, such great work, Adam. I mean, it's, uh, it's really such an important study. I will say as a dad, uh, which you guys are now uh, as well, a little, little further behind than I am, I remember reading this stuff by Edie Hirsch, and, and I tell you, it's it's huge. This idea that there's so much that they can learn before they can learn to decode. And so zero to mm -hmm. five, of course they can learn about the world. Of course they can learn so much history and science and art and music and literature. And no then doubt. when they get to that point and they're old enough to decode, 
you know, and they suddenly, it's just, they zip right along, right? Because these words they've been hearing and learning about all their lives, uh, they see it on the page. And, That's right. you know, our big question is what, what can we do uh, for those kids who aren't as fortunate to be getting that kind of stuff at home, zero to five, uh, so we can make more progress. Lots of work to be done. All right. Thank you, Adam. Appreciate it. And now it is time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. Oh, we're just talking with Adam about his great study. You must be very proud. <laughs> hey, that was a long time in the making. Came out great. And it's been well received. So kudos to Adam. Absolutely. Yeah. Now yep. he did a great job. It, and it's, you know, it was so nice to be able to take advantage of that federal study, the early childhood longitudinal study. I feel like there's, there's some great uh, data out there and the trick is figuring out, you know, what's there and how to use it and how to make sense of it. And so glad to use this resource, right? Uh, I know. And ha have an interesting question that federal data can address, you know, yeah. sometimes it seems kind of What are you saying? What are you saying? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh, well, it's, yeah, look, it, it's true that it's often the case that, you know, there's interesting descriptive statistics coming out of NCES, but, you know, finding data that can actually answer a question in a quasi-experimental way, that there's not a lot of that, seems like. Right. right. Or it's been picked clean. All right. Well, speaking of data and studies, it is your time to shine, Amber. What do you got for this? All right. We have a randomized study. So, ha, that is really cool. Um, they examine whether providing high school graduates with full tuition scholarships, aka free college, impacts college degree enrollment and completion. So the study takes place in Nebraska. Apparently there's a very generous foundation with the name of Buffett in it that provides full rides to thousands of Nebraskan graduates from low-income households. So just a little bit about how this works. Recipients get awards based on financial need per their FAFSA application. And then on the basis of, of merit as well, they look at their high school GPA. They also look at their college essays. And they also require that the uh, recipient maintain a 2.0 GPA in college to continue the scholarship. Students are free to use the scholarships at four or two-year colleges. And the awards, get this, can be renewed up to five and three years, respectively, depending on, you know, if you want to go to a four or two year. The award amounts are campus specific, meaning they're calibrated to the cost of tuition and fees at that college, plus they get money for books. Sounds are, nice. Yes. It's very generous of Mr. Buffet. It is uh, very generous. Yes, very, very sweet. Though to point out, I do believe this may be his daughter, not yes. his. Oh, oh okay. his money has all gone to the Gates Foundation. Yes, Susan right. is, I think Susan is her name. Okay. All right, anyhow, um, the awards are generous. So another, for instance, if you're gonna wanna go to the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, the awards, 8,500, the tuition and fees are 8,000. So you're getting a little bit more actually than what tuition and fees cost, I guess, because again, they wanna give you book money too. All right, among applicants aiming to enroll between 2012 and 2016, a subset of awards was allocated by random assignment. So first they took out the highest scoring applicants and they gave them all awards. All right, that was about 15% of the applicants. Then the lowest scoring applicants were removed from the pool. And then the rest of the applicant pool was randomly assigned to receive this generous aid or not. 
The sample included roughly 3,700 treated applicants and 4,500 control applicants who, again, didn't get the award. Of that sample, about 6,800 kids, or 82%, indicated a four-year college as their preference, and the remainder indicated a two-year college as their preference. The average award for four years was 8,200, and for two years, 3,900, but again, all this is campus-specific, okay? Findings. The awards boosted enrollment in four-year programs by almost 11 points, which is mostly attributable to the decline in enrollment at two-year colleges. And they boosted college completion for students in four-year schools by about eight points. Conditional on not having a degree, college enrollment in the treated group is sharply higher than college enrollment in the control group two to five years after random assignment. And this was the kind of the kicker, right? Although the awards boosted enrollment rates more for the two-year than the four-year applicants, the aid did not increase the completion of associate degrees among those applicants in two-year colleges. So it boosted enrollment more for two than four-year, but it did not increase completion of the associate degrees in the two-year colleges. Among students who plan to attend a four-year college, 71% of scholarship recipients graduated within six years. 63% of students who didn't get the scholarship graduated. Uh, Non-white students, those who are less prepared, so those that have lower SAT and ACT scores, and those eligible for larger Pell Grants, so the, the poorer kids, all benefited more. The awards in general also increase time for completion, because remember they give you, you can extend that award out. Mm -hmm. um, and they did find that kids took advantage of that. <laughs> um, so when you're trying to do some kind of rough cost benefit, the awards, the scholarship aid did increase overall spending. And they find also that many of the benefits would flow to the kids who were likely to finish anyway. In other words, they said, you know, most, most of the spending is, can think of it like a transfer, reduces student debt, but for a bulk of the kids, it doesn't affect, affect the degree uh, attainment. All right, then they, just, then they conduct all these other analyses and they show that the projected net earnings gains from this, quote, you know, scholarship-induced schooling outweighs the corresponding marginal cost. So obviously, you know, the kids are going to earn more in the long run on net compared to the, the corresponding cost. And then they kind of do a bunch of other analyses, but in the end, it seems like where they landed was, you know, given this lack of community college effects, the study really seems to, at the end, say that, you know, college aid like this can induce degree completion to the extent that it sparks and deepens early engagement with four-year college programs. So early on, it seems to have an impact, you know, with the kids, if you can get them right when they're coming in as freshmen, as opposed to, you know, later in the game, uh, particularly at four-year programs, that's where we're seeing, seeing the bump. That's it. All right. Very interesting. I mean, so, and the big takeaway for policy, right, is that it's a problem. It would be a huge mistake to just do free college that encourages kids to go to community colleges, which is, in fact, what some of the proposals out there would do, right? They're saying, well, we're going to make community college free. That could encourage kids to go to schools where they may not do as well and may not complete because they seem to be doing better at the four-year schools, maybe because those schools have more resources or better schools or better peers or more support or whatever. Whatever, that's right. We certainly don't want kids who are well-prepared to succeed in four-year schools to choose sort of lesser quality two-year schools instead, right? That's right. 
So Amber, yeah, just clarify for me a little bit. So it, it moved kids from two year to four year, and it, it boosted four year completion. Or I'm, I got mixed up there a little. Right, it boosted enrollment at two years. Right, okay. because yeah, and then it boosted the completion at the four year and not and not the two year. Okay, but and and people were displaced from the two year to the four year. Right. They say it was mostly the, the boost in enrollment at four year was mostly attributable to that decline in enrollment at the two year. Okay. All right. Yes. All right. So kids are doing better in part because they get money in part because they go to, to the four year instead of the two year. Right. Yeah. I think Mike's right. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 let's it just end it right there. But, but Mike, okay. But Mike, <laughs> it does provide some support for the notion that we could help kids through college. Right. I mean, no, that uh, financially, yeah, ab- yes, absolutely, yes, financially. No, that's yeah, right. but yes, yes, but yes. it's. I mean, is the takeaway here that institution quality matters, or that the kid that it matters who the kids are? I guess I'm just trying to disentangle. Is it about whether they go to the two year or four year, or is it about is there something about the kids who who are displaced from two year to four year who are better prepared than the ones who aren't displaced? Does that make sense? I'll just add to that. Is it about sort of these uh, screening? mechanisms they put in place right there is a merit component to this right um, you know and 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 who knows what these what they're looking for in the essays but but that's a part of this whole thing too you know and they've got to keep up their gpa so it's not it's not you know no strings here well they have to keep up their gpa at a 2.0 i mean come on is it even possible <laughs> anymore to get less than a 2.0 on an american college campus that is I mean, a fair yeah. point mike touche touche uh, it makes me think of one more thing in the news this week, which Checker wrote about in this week's Gadfly, which is Thomas Jefferson High School in Northern Virginia, among uh, some people say the best high school in America. You know, there's another plan for trying to figure out how to make that school more diverse. And their latest plan is, sounds very similar to this. That first, they'd admit the, the top 100 kids according to their holistic r- review. Mm-hmm. But then the next 400 slots would be determined basically by lottery. So they'd take a bunch of kids that meet the requirements, a bunch of high achieving mm-hmm. kids, probably mm-hmm. thousands of them that want in, and then choose them by lottery. So gang, mm-hmm. we should study that. If they do this, that, that make for a great study. We're going to have a random assignment study into the best type. Yeah. Let's track these kids. Find we out could, if it matters. We could hugely, <laughs> it occurs to me, Mike, we could hugely simplify the college application process with a random lottery. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, look, Rick, Rick has, among others, has said that, that we, for the elite schools, you know, we should say, yeah. you <laughs> right. you know, which a lot of kids do. Let's stop pretending that these- We should admit the truth. Yeah. And really distinguish between, you know, one super high achiever versus another and just do it by lottery. Yeah. Right. It's great for research. It is. It is <laughs> great for research. And that's exactly why people do things, right? To, to help yeah. research. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Great, great for research. Probably bad for the Karens of the world, uh, the, uh, the, the pushy suburban moms. It drive them crazy. Right. Uh, all right, everybody. That is probably Sorry, pushy all- suburban moms. Yeah. David's giving me that look that tells me that it's probably time for us to, to wrap this up uh, before I, I put my foot any further into my mouth. So we will do that. Good stuff, Amber. We appreciate it. So until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.